What's new in science this week? What's new in science this week? Bench talk, the week in science. Bench talk. Bench talk. Bench talk. You are now listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. Bench Talk, the, the week, week in, in science. science. Greetings, all. Dave Robinson here to tell you we have a great show this week. It's an interview I had with Professor Frederick K. Hilton back in October of this year. Dr. Frederick Hilton, who's known to everyone as Fritz, was a professor in the Department of Anatomy in the University of Louisville Medical School between 1958 up to 1995. He was a successful researcher in anatomy, physiology, and biochemistry, as well as in vitro fertilization, and he's published dozens of research papers, many of which were co-authored by his wife and colleague, the distinguished Professor Mary Anderson Hilton. Dr. Mary Hilton passed away in 2013. At 96 years of age, Fritz Hilton is an expert ornithologist and accomplished wildlife artist, having just shown his extensive collection of paintings at the Core Gallery in Louisville just back in April of 2022. He's painted for the Audubon Society and has paintings gracing the halls of the American Museum of Natural History in New York City and at the Presidential Library of Lyndon Baines Johnson in Austin, Texas. Fritz served in the Navy during World War II, but also had some later wartime experiences teaching histology at the Saigon Medical School during the height of the Vietnam War. Professor Hilton has sketched and painted wildlife, especially birds, in places like Zimbabwe, Scotland, Botswana, France, Kenya, Scandinavian countries, and numerous states in the U.S. With this wide assortment of experiences, we weren't able to squeeze the entire interview into one Bench Talk episode, so we'll continue it another time. But here's the start of my interview with Dr. Fritz Hilton. Thanks so much, Dr. Hilton. And my first question was, how did you get interested in a career in science? What started you out? Well, I was born and raised in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Okay. Born in 1926. I was fortunate in that when my father and mother were married, my mother's parents, as a wedding gift to the newlyweds, was a place called Glenwood Manor Farm. So in the winter, we lived in a house right on the banks of the Susquehanna River, and in the summers, we would move out to the farm and live in a lovely home on the farm, the farmed by a farmer, had 30 acres of woods and streams, 100 acres. And as a young lad, I started to roam the acres. Uh, my father, my mother were excellent artists. That wasn't their business, but it was their my father's hobby was early American decoration. My mother was very good. She had her own looms and was a good weaver. My uncle, 
who lived with us. He had never married. He was the first registered architect in Harrisburg, and he was a very, very good watercolorist. So from an early stage, I began to paint with their assistance. I was probably seven to eight years old. I still have uh, the first oil painting I did, and I guess my dad wrote on the back and said, Fritz Hilton, age 11. (laughs) So I was raised in a rural and urban environment, but the rural environment took over, and I began to paint the wildlife I saw. And I also copied the paintings by Alan Brooks of birds from the National Geographic magazine. One night, when I was probably 13 years old, the farmer brought to me a dead great horned owl that he had obviously shot. And the great horned owl had consumed a skunk. So the owl itself doesn't smell too good. And when you put on it the normal butyl mercaptan, the smell of a skunk, it's not very pleasant. (laughs) I took a book written by Ernest Thompson Seton and went into the basement of our home because Seton had shown how to skin and mount a bird. Oh, you were going to preserve it. So I started to skin the great horned owl. Unfortunately, Seton was showing you how to do this with a crow. But with the owl, there's a time when you must invert the skin over the head of the owl, and the owl's neck is so small, I couldn't do it. It turns (laughs) out you have to make a slit to the occipital region in the skull and pull the skull out through that to get rid of the brains and the eyes and so forth. And my parents had gone to the movies. I wrapped the owl up in a newspaper and put it in the refrigerator. And when my parents came home, they must have gone to the refrigerator for a (laughs) nightcap. The next morning at breakfast, my father said, Fritz, we really appreciate and want you to continue with your drawing, but I think I would like to introduce you to a gentleman who is a real professional ornithologist. And he took me to a small zoo, the Harrisburg Zoo, in a large park area, and it was run by Richard Rauch. Richard Rauch and Harlow had played football for Penn State. Harlow became the coach at Harvard football for many years. Hmm. Rauch went on to coach the first NFL team. (laughs) He also was one of the first ornithologists to go and find certain birds' nests in the Arctic. He lived in a little home in the park at the Harrisburg Zoo. He had been a high school friend of my father's. He said, Fritz, get some paintings. 
I'm going to take you up to meet Dick Ralk. I take my paintings up and show them to Dick Ralk. I remember he turned to my father. He said, Bill, your son has talent. He needs to know the animals. He taught me how to repel. He taught me how to climb cliffs, climb trees, <laughs> use climbing irons. They had a meeting in his house once a month of other people who were interested mm -hmm. in the out-of-doors. One of them was Dr. William Rhine, a dentist in Harrisburg. He was in his 30s. He was very well-to-do, and he had started to take color movies of birds. And this is in the mid to late 1930s. Wow. Bill Rhine became my mentor. My school principal allowed me to go with Dr. Rhine, and the first thing we did was go to Mount Johnson Island in the backwaters of the Susquehanna, formed by the Conowingo Dam. And uh, there was a hilltop isolated from the shore some years ago, so it had never been timbered or logged. So there were virgin hardwoods yeah, so. on that, and a bald eagle nested on that. It was 103 feet from the base of the tree to the bottom of the net. <laughs> we put a pulley system. We had a blind. We pulled the blind up and attached it about, it was probably 30 feet from the nest. Yeah. You could go into the blind and look down into the nest. So with the good graces of my principal in high school, I was in the 10th grade, and I went with Dr. Ryan because we had a pulley system that I could pull Bill up. The blind was tied firmly and braced, and I would pull Bill up you know, almost at dawn, and he would stay there till noon, and while he was up there, I would have trapped a bird or painted muskrat or yeah. something like that. <laughs> Kept yourself busy at the yeah. bottom of the tree. <laughs> and the next year, we did this with a raven in Allen Seeger State Park in Pennsylvania. And I'll skip ahead a good bit. I went with Bill Rhine and two others in the 1953 to Durango, Mexico, and the Valley of the Wacamaya where we photographed the imperial ivory-billed woodpeckers. Yeah. Did you find it? So I've skipped a lot. <laughs> because so as I was doing this with Bill and photographing birds with him, he happened to have a Cine Kodak special 16-millimeter camera. And colored film had just come out, had mm. come out a little before, but it was available. And he was taking movies of this. He took still pictures also, but he didn't show them very much. He was almost unknown to the ornithological hmm. world, yet he was one of the finest photographers ever. I started to send, during this same period of time, my paintings to Dr. George Sutton 
at Cornell University. Cornell University at that time and still today in spades, really, has the strongest ornithology yes, department. Yes, they do. It's worldwide uh, reputation. Yes, it's uh, the laboratory of ornithology. Mm-hmm. So I went to Cornell. I graduated from high school in 1943. That fall, I went to Cornell. I had been accepted at yeah. Cornell. And actually, I was the first person from our small township high school to go to an Ivy League school. (laughs) In those days, the first semester was over after Christmas. Now they stop before Christmas. I turned 18, 8th of February. I had my draft orders within a week. Oh, yeah. And early in the spring of 1944... I found myself getting off a train in Williamsburg, Virginia, and uh, beginning my naval basic training at Camp Perry. After finishing basic training, I had leave to come home. I returned to Camp Perry and had been assigned to Amphib Training School in Mississippi. There were several of us from the camp that were going to do this. It was 5.30 in the morning, and we were at a train station outside of Williamsburg. We get on the train, go to Richmond, Virginia, where we got off this train and were to get on another train. The other train was very late. It was filled with military personnel, Mm. all heading towards Gulfport, Mississippi. It's 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. I'm standing on the pier because the second train was late coming in. And I hadn't paid much attention to a lady walking along the pier till she got very close. And then she almost broke into a little run. And she ran up and kissed me on the cheek. And she said, it's so good to see you, Fritz. Hmm. She was my Latin and art teacher from high school. I never saw her again in my life. I get on the second train. We haven't really pulled out of the station. And it's now noon. Two SP Shore Patrol come through the train When they get to the car that I'm in, they said, if Seaman Second Class F.K. Hilton is in this car, please (laughs) raise your hand. Oh. (laughs) I raised my hand, and the guy pointed. He said, grab your sea bag, Sonny. You have new orders. And I thought, (laughs) how does Seaman Second Class get new orders? What did I do? (laughs) They sent me back to Camp Perry. And I was made a Navy artist. Okay. They I never artists. saw this lady again. <laughs> the Navy had no idea I could even draw my breath. <laughs> so the only thing I tracked down and found out that this lady was married to the executive officer of the base. Oh, yeah. And they must have had breakfast together. And he must have said, they've asked me to find an artist. <laughs> And she must have said, I just found you one. And she knew you were good. So my whole wartime experience was as a Navy artist. What did you paint? It was very interesting. (laughs) Did all sorts of things. I made charts. 
At one time, I did a number of airplanes, side, Mm -hmm. top, bottom views, every place, to use for aircraft recognition. They made them into slides. And when you were training, Mm -hmm. you had a portion of your training on aircraft recognition. Great experience. I was, I say, one of four artists. One of them was a young chap just my age. We were both just 18. Uh, Dick Dugan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And he later became sports cartoonist for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. I was never in combat. I was never assigned to a vessel, to a ship. I'd been on a few. I was on an aircraft carrier to do isometric projection of the radar installations and so forth. But I had never really been at sea and been in combat. So I didn't have enough points to get out very soon. I didn't get out of the Navy till the summer of 1946. Hmm. So you're in for three or four years. And I go back to Cornell in ornithology, and I took a course in comparative physiology from Don Griffin, And while I'd always been interested in birds and so forth, he was a very fine comparative physiologist. Really, I started to become interested in the physiology Mm. and so forth of birds and other animals. I'm a plant physiologist myself. Yeah, physiology is, it it encompasses everything, anatomy, biochemistry, genetics, physics, everything. Well, I also should point out on my first day in boot camp way back in 1944, our full first day, we had a chief petty officer, an old-timer that had retired, and they'd brought him in just for training. 120 of us, a company, lined up, and they were lined up in a long, straight line. <laughs> and he said, okay, everybody here who's been to kindergarten, one step forward. <laughs> Everybody from to grade school, junior high school, high school. I was surprised because I looked down the line at high school and who had graduated from high school and half the people had never graduated from that, high school. How about that, really? Hmm. Then he said, and this is the important one, have any of you been to college? <laughs> I'd been to Cornell for a semester, for one semester. and a week. <laughs> I'd take one step forward. And I look down the line, and there's one other chap. One person. (laughs) Scott Gaiman. We stayed in touch, obviously, during basic training. We were in the same company. I'm back at Cornell now in 1946 for the fall semester. And as I said, the first semester went over into January. And then we had about four or five days off. They called it junior week at Cornell. I get a letter from Scott Gaiman, and he says, Fritz, I'm now a graduate student at Penn State Hmm. working for a Ph.D. in psychology. There's a lady in our department who's taking a few days off to drive her daughter to Cornell, where she is going to work toward a Ph.D. in chemistry. He was wrong about that. It was biochemistry. 
I wangled an invitation to see her because she, he said she's little miss everything here. She's president of mortar board, everything. She's got more scholarships than you can think of. Not only that, she has the highest grade point average of anybody ever to graduate <laughs> from Penn State. He was wrong about that, too. Some guy beat her. I don't, I don't know what it's like now. Okay, so I have this letter, Cornell. And I looked at it and I thought, boy, am I interested in going a date with yeah. somebody studying See her. biochemistry. <laughs> he said chemistry. I was struggling with organic probably at the time. <laughs> but about the 10th of March, I had found out where she lived and I thought, we're having a sock hop at my fraternity on the 15th. I'm going to call this girl and just see if she's interested. <laughs> so I called. And this lady, Mary Anderson, answered, and uh, I explained who I was, and she remembered Scott Gaiman, and she said, fine, fine, I would, that would be okay, I would come, but I'm going to be in the lab working until about 9 o'clock at night. I said, that's okay, I'll come pick you up at 9 o'clock. So I go over to the woman's graduate house. The house mother lets me in. She calls up, Mary, your date is here. <laughs> and I'm looking up at a landing on the next floor. It was actually the house was an old faculty house. Yeah. I look up and here's this vision in a red wool dress. And she comes down the steps and she puts out her hand and says, hello, Fritz. And that was Mary Anderson. I had made previous <laughs> arrangements to take a girl, Polly Rogers, to Saturday, just a week later. To We had an indoor track meet with Yale, and I was the high jumper for Cornell. And I will simply say, Polly Rogers was the last time <laughs> I ever went out with another lady other than <laughs> Mary Anderson. We were married just about two or three weeks after she received her Ph.D. in biochemistry. At that time, I was a first-year graduate student at the Johns Hopkins School of Hygiene and Public Health. Mary had already been offered a job as a research biochemist in the Department of Medicine at Johns Hopkins. So yeah. the Navy played a large role in my life. I had two and a half years of art with three other artists, and I met a gentleman there who introduced me to the most important person in my life. <laughs> yeah, and so did she persuade you to go into biochem physiology? You started studying physiology of birds first, yeah. and then you end up I, at John Hopkins. Actually, I was still in the ornithology department, and I graduated from Cornell, with a degree in ornithology, zoology. Mm -hmm. And I was still interested in them, but I was interested very much in the certain physiology aspect. Birds are great experimental animals yeah. because they have mm -hmm. a very definite breeding season. They have reproductive organs that change and so forth. And I happened to find at Johns Hopkins a young man named David E. Davis, Dr. Davis, and that's yeah. it. I yeah. joined, and we did a lot of work on physiology. Of, I used starlings because they were available, and I worked with them much of my life. 
And Mary and I did many things together. I first took a job after I got my doctor of science degree at Hopkins. I came to the University of Louisville, and Mary came, but she had ultimately four children, so she took eight years off. Ultimately, in 1963 or four, she returned to lecturing and teaching at the University of she, Louisville, she published where we a lot stayed and until 1995, and yeah. we did a lot of cooperative research. Yeah, I saw that. How, what was that like, to uh, be with the same person 24 hours a day? <laughs> oh, yeah, well, it was wonderful. She was an extremely intelligent individual, much more so than I was, I'm afraid. <laughs> So it was great. Yeah, I mean, we had successful. many things mm -hmm. in common. We also had separate areas of research, but we also had an area where I was doing a lot of physiology and biochemistry in birds, so she was a great help. And she was doing a lot with amino acids and so forth. Yeah, I saw in and, humans, uh, or she would study mice and rats animal experiments, and in, in those instances, I could be helpful with my hands. I did uh, the surgery for Mary. I see. So oh, you did yes. a lot of the surgery. Yeah. She would I do did a lot of the chem. surgery. And obviously, we shared physiology and biochem because I didn't tell you, but she was my instructor in biochemistry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that explains your papers with starlings, and then you've got some papers with bats, too. Right. Did you just want a flying mammal, or what? No, we were interested in hibernation. Oh, and okay. And the physiology of hibernation was the main reason. Mm -hmm. So we used bats. They were a great tool for hibernation. Uh, we sure. also used golden mantled ground squirrels uh, hmm. that we went out and brought back from Colorado. And I continued to use starlings. First, they were available. In the old medical school, we had a starling roost, several thousand birds. Oh, you were raising them. Uh, well, or they, they would spend the night yeah, they'd on the, come in, in the building. The night, and I had permission to have the tower screened off with a trap door so I could trap X number of <laughs> starlings and, and get them. And they were excellent, as I say, reproductive system. And then at one point, you got involved with in vitro fertilization. That's correct. In 1960, when we first came to Louisville. That was Dr. Fritz Hilton now retired professor from the Department of Anatomy at the University of Louisville. And I want to thank Fritz for taking time away from his painting to have this talk with me. We don't have time to finish this fascinating story today, so we'll get back to it on a future episode of Bitch Talk, The Weekend Science.
the music you're listening to today is by Peter Ilyich Tchaikovsky, Symphony No. 4, Third Movement, written in 1878 and performed here by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, Sir Thomas Beecham directing, 1978. I'm Dave Robinson, signing off for now. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. Thank you.